All right, I know it sounds like we've got like a herd of cattle, like stomping around on our roof, so, but um, I'm assured we're safe. That's my, my, my thoughts there. So uh, anyway, hopefully it won't be too distracting. It's a windy day in the Hamptons, right? So I don't know if you're up at 6 a.m. like I was, it was snowing, like big, beautiful snowflakes, and now it's sunny and windy, so uh, another day in the Hamptons. All right, if you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, or you can just look along in your, in your bulletin. It's printed there for you. Um, today, I have prepared kind of more of a scholarly sermon, um, it, and it's possible that some of you might not be all that excited about the material that we're covering. It might not capture you as a real important topic for today, but um, you know we're moving to the book of Romans, and now we're in chapter 11, and this is truly important part of God's Word. In chapter 11, Paul addresses a question that was on the mind of so many early Christians. See, if God chose the Jewish nation to be his called-out people, then, then why have so many Jews rejected Christ while Gentiles have received him? That was a great question in Paul's day, and it's still a good question for us today. Where do those of Jewish heritage fit into God's salvation? And at the heart of this question is really a question uh, that addresses God's righteousness. See, if most of the nation of Israel in Jesus' day rejected Jesus as the Messiah, then, then hasn't God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob failed? See, God's character is on the line here. Well, Paul invites us to, to sit in his classroom and learn just what it is uh, about the relationship between ancient Israel and the church today. And when he's done, he ends up where we should all end up, giving glory to God in praise. Our passage is uh, Romans chapter 11. It's a lot to cover. Uh, read along as I read aloud. I ask you then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let the table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. 
in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to a disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and admit that um, we do not fully understand uh, who you are and how and why you do what you do. Some things are beyond our tracing out. We do know that um, this word to us this morning is important. I pray that you would give us humble hearts to receive it well, that your spirit would dwell in us, that we can understand more richly and fully um, who your people are and what it means to be chosen by grace, we pray. Amen. Should Christians evangelize Jews? 
A group called Jews for Jesus says emphatically, yes. Jews for Jesus is comprised of Jewish people, of Jewish heritage, who have come to trust in Jesus as their Messiah. And their hope is that more Jewish people would come to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But not everybody sees it this way. In 2003, John Stott and, uh, at John Stott and Rico Tice's church, All Souls Church in London, they, they held an event um, sponsoring Jews for Jesus. And there, there was a big launch event on Rosh Hashanah meant to target the Jewish inhabitants of London. And this really ticked off uh, the Interfaith Alliance UK. It's a coalition of Jewish and Christian and, and Muslim religious leaders. And it resulted in a really, um, really strong vocal uh, letter to the Archbishop of Canada. Barry, uh, despising what was being done. This politically correct approach uh, really has long been present in, a, in America as well. There's some liberal Christian denominations, Protestant, Protestant denominations, for instance, the Presbyterian Church USA, um, PCUSA, that's, uh, we're not part of that denomination, we are PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. I know that's confusing, and if you're new, you're probably scratching your head, don't worry about it. Um, but I'm just saying this because in 1988, they issued um, a decree, a letter, saying that, that the Jews have their own covenant with God and therefore Jews don't need Jesus. But is this true? Does God really have one way of saving the Jews and another way for saving Christians? This ancient apostle Paul, who was once named Saul and who once lived his life um, once lived his life gathering up and persecuting Christians, who later became a Christian himself, the Apostle Paul says emphatically that there really is no salvation apart from the Messiah. And, that, um, and this is not just for Christians, it's for Jews too. You know, the church in Rome, this letter is being written to Rome, right? A little context. The church in Rome was mostly made up of Gentiles. That would be non-Jewish people. You see, the emperor Claudius, around 45 to 50 AD, he kicked out all of the Jews out of, out of um, the city of Rome. And so this church now in Rome is made up of mostly um, Gentile Christians. And Paul is worried that there's going to be some sort of arrogance on their part, that they're going to get puffed up and become prideful. As if God has moved on from his chosen people, the nation of Israel. As if their unbelief is now somehow final and beyond recovery. Paul says here a couple things. He wants us to understand um, some things regarding the nation of Israel and the church. He wants us to gain perspective on God's big plans and his big purposes for the people that he calls his own. And he wants us to point all people, Jewish people included, towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're going to take some time this morning looking at this. We're going to look in three areas. We're going to look at the portion. We're going to look at the promise. And then we will look at the praise. First, the portion. And here what we see is, we're not just, we don't just see it in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well. And what is that? We see that not all of Israel is true Israel. That, that only a portion of Israel is truly what um, the Bible talks of as being uncircumcised in the heart. That is, that they have a genuine relationship with God that is based on God's grace. 
Earlier, Grayson read from, from John chapter 8. Of course, you know, Jesus was, was Jewish. Some people lose track of that. But Jesus was sent by God uh, to the people of God. And earlier, we see Jesus was arguing with some um, Israelites. And we see that it, by the end of it, we don't have the whole, we didn't read the whole passage, but by the end of it, they sought actually to kill Jesus. Jesus told them that, that he was sent by God with the truth, the truth that they were to receive, um, but they would not receive it. And Jesus says that was to be expected. Why? Because their father, though they were born of Abraham, though they were naturally descended of Abraham's seed, they really weren't true Abraham or truly Israelites. They're, Jesus had harsh words. He said what? He said that their father was the devil. Talk about being politically incorrect. But Jesus made it clear, just because you're born an Israelite doesn't mean you belong to spiritual Israel. In order to understand this, let's do a little exercise. Imagine you were an Israelite back in Egypt, and God sends Moses uh, to deliver you, to redeem you. And now you find yourself in the middle of, um, of the wilderness. And then Moses comes down from a mountain with tablets of, of commandments along with plans in his head that God gave him to build this glorious tabernacle where God could come and dwell with his people. Now, imagine when Moses comes down, you were to say, say to him, you know, Moses, thanks for everything. That was really nice that you delivered us and all. And um, this manna has been pretty tasty. Um, but here's the deal. We just want to keep living as as children of Abraham, we, we don't want to add anything to that. We, we don't want the law. We don't want the tabernacle where God can come. We don't want this new stuff. We want to continue on as children of Abraham. Know this, if, if, if that was how you replied, if you said no to Moses' greater unfurling of the covenant uh, with God's people, you would be cutting yourself off from God's people if you said no to the further revelation that comes through Moses, through the law and through the tabernacle. You would be cutting off. You'd be cutting yourself off. Now, fast forward yourself to Jesus' day. Imagine you're an Israelite in Jerusalem. And you say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, thanks for the miracles and all. And you really, you bake some really good bread, you know. Uh, but I tell you what, we're just going to stick with Abraham and Moses. You know, just, um, just kind of leave us alone. We're going to do our own thing. See, a first century Jew who says no to the Messiah is cutting himself off from God's people. Sadly, tens of thousands of Israelites rejected the Messiah and therefore severed themselves from the ongoing promises of God's people. All that was left, Paul says, was a remnant, just a small portion of the total population. Only a small remnant was there, faithful, and received the Messiah. That's the problem that Paul is addressing. Paul is telling the Christians in Rome, who were mostly Gentiles, that this was actually to be expected. God hasn't rejected his people. Paul gives them living proof. Verse 1, he says, look at me. I'm living proof that God has not rejected his people. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm even from the respected tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't rejected me. I came to believe in the Messiah Jesus as well. Now remember, the, the 
our word Christ, which is an English word based on the Greek word Christos, is, is also a, a, a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So Christ and Messiah are the same words. Jesus' last name isn't Christ, uh, isn't Christ. It's, it, his title is Christ or Messiah. Paul also reminds his readers of Elijah. He points back to the prophet. And he's, and he's saying, because of Elijah's experience, we should expect this, that when the Messiah comes, there would only be a remnant. You see, during Elijah's day, the nation of Israel, for all intents and purposes, looked as if the entire nation had abandoned God and began worshiping other gods, like the Canaanite god Baal. To, to, to Elijah's eyes, Elijah's eyes, he, he couldn't see anybody else who was really truly Israel, that is, people of faith um, who um, sought to love God and honor God and were dependent upon his mercy. But what did God do? God spoke to, to Elijah and God said, he said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. That word kept... What a comforting word. If God has called you, and by His grace you have received His Messiah, you can be sure of this. He will keep you. You will become one of God's kept ones. What an assurance for us today. But here's the truth that we need to chew on. In the nation of Israel, there was the visible nation. It was all people who could say Abraham um, was my father, of course, through Isaac and not Ishmael, right? And, and, um, but within that visible people, there was a subset all throughout ancient Israel's history. There was always a subset of people who were true Israelites, circumcised in the heart. All right. And so too with the church. You know, there's the visible church. There are people who say, you know what, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, great-grandma was buried at this church, and, you know, I go to church on Easter every now and then, or I show up, and I try to do nice things, and they think that they're a Christian. Um, and, And there's a big visible church. But God knows how many are truly his, people who are truly uh, born anew, who've been given new hearts that now beat for God. That promise of the Old Testament, I will give them a new heart um, that beats for me, was God's promise. So there's always a visible and invisible people of God. Now, if God hasn't failed, then who's the blame? Paul lays the blame squarely on the people of Israel. Verse 7, what then? In other words, what happened? All right, And then he answers, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. What was it that Israel, when I say Israel here, as a, as a, as a general whole, as remember, there was a remnant that came out of the nation, but as a whole, what was Israel seeking? They were seeking a good thing the wrong way. You ever done that? <laughs> um, they were seeking a right standing with God, but the wrong way. They believed that simply by virtue of their birthright as offspring of Abraham, that all of the promises of God were theirs. They presumed upon God's grace. They also sought a right standing with God through working for it. They were proud of the law in the temple, and rightly they should be, but they thought that they could earn their righteousness by obeying the law. 
The temple became a place in Jesus' day where a place not where they sought forgiveness of sin, but a place to parade around in self-righteous piety. There's a reason why Jesus overturned the tables there. Paul says that their problem was also is that they were hardened. When, Jew, when Jesus stood before them on that day, their hearts were hard towards the Messiah. Jesus told them what? That you need me in order to be set free. Uh, that, that only through me can, I, can you be brought to God. Only through me can your sins be forgiven. They needed Jesus to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Jesus wasn't talking about the actual physical temple. Jesus was talking about what? His own body. We spoke about it on Easter. Jesus' body um, was laid in the grave but rose again on the third day. Instead of having soft hearts that ask for an explanation, understand this. If, if they would have said, Jesus, this is kind of hard. Help us to understand. Jesus, we're a bit confused. Can, can you understand, can you explain to us how, how you would be the Messiah? We don't see it. See, if they came to Jesus with soft hearts, Jesus would have worked with them. He would have built upon, uh, upon what they knew. He would have answered them. But they came to Jesus with hard hearts. And the hardness that they had in their hearts became even harder. Paul also tells us that it was God who hardened them. It's true, the elect, that is those who were chosen by grace. Did you see that? All throughout the history of God's people, the ones who were truly, not the visible, but the invisible people of God, have always been what? Chosen by grace. To be brought into a relationship with God, not based on works, but based upon the work of Jesus Christ, saved by faith. People in the Old Testament, my friends, look at this. What was that temple about in the Old Testament? Why did God give the law and the temple or the tabernacle at the same time? Because God knew his people needed to know how to live their lives, but he also knew that the law did what? Reminded us of our sin and our need of a Savior. And so a faithful Jewish person trusting in God's grace would go and offer a sacrifice, and God would use that in order to forgive that person's sin. But that person in the Old Testament truly was looking forward to a greater sacrifice to come, a sacrifice that was once and for all for the sins of God's people. And that's what Jesus came to do, and that's what he did. But people's hearts were hardened to that. Every person who has a relationship with God has been chosen by grace. And, but those who, who do, do not, who have not been chosen, the, the hardness that is already in their heart becomes what? Even more hardened and more hardness. God works this in the person's life. And so what we see is that almost every Israelite in Judea at the, when Jesus was there, their hearts were hardened towards the Messiah and they rejected Christ. They proved themselves to be cut off like a branch from a tree from the people of God. Quick word of caution before we move on. I know this is kind of hard stuff. Some of you probably are like, oh, this is weird. This is really hard to understand. Um, if that's you, you know, don't go running out of here stomping your heels. Uh, let's talk. Talk to me afterwards, right? I mean, this is purposely hard stuff. By the end, Paul is like going, what? This is really hard to understand. Who can even begin to comprehend God? But all I know is he's worthy of my praise, all right? So that's where we are right now, okay? Um, and perhaps you're here um, and you know you're not part 
of the visible people of God, uh, let alone the invisible people of God. Maybe you're here investigating, or maybe someone just drug you here against your will. Uh, sorry about that. Um, and you and you sit here, and you don't quite know what the big deal is about Jesus. Well, why is this pastor so excited about Jesus Christ? You don't see your need for him. If this is true of you, understand this. In some in some true and real way, your heart is hard towards God and his grace. But for whatever reason, you are here. And that's a good thing. Here's what I encourage you to do. Ask God to soften your heart. Ask God to, to give you a heart that really truly can, can beat for him. Ask him to, to take away what might be clouding your vision. Ask him to unstop your ears so that you can hear with clarity his words towards you. I'm convinced that that if this is your prayer, he's going to lead you somewhere good. I encourage you to follow him wherever he takes you. That's the portion. Now for the purpose. Why would God, who is sovereign over all things, allow most all of his nation to stumble? Paul tells us this. There was a greater purpose involved. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did they stumble just so they could stumble? You know, that's, that's just kind of meaningless, right? There's no purpose there. Paul says, no, no. Paul says, God needed his people to stumble so that the door would be opened for the Gentiles, so that they could come in and be a part of God's people as well. Paul writes in verse 11, at the end of verse 11, rather through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Understand this. If you know your Old Testament, or if you're a Jewish person here, and you know, you know your Torah, you know, you know the prophets, you, you, you know that God's desire has always been that His people would bless the Gentiles. That, that, that through God's people on earth, that all the nations of the world would come to experience the goodness and the grace and the love of Yahweh. Okay? You know that. That's, that's true. God's people have always been called to be a light to the Gentiles. Understand this. That is why God gave the nation the land that he gave them. Yes, there's some really fertile ground in Palestine. But it's no Nile River Valley. God could have put them there. Talking about really fruitful land flowing milk and honey. Why did God give the Israelites that piece of property way back then? Well, if you know where it sits on the map, and if you know your, some of your ancient history, God placed his people where all the caravans would travel. From east to west, from north to south. If you wanted to go somewhere, you had to go where? Through the promised land. And you would have to interact with God's transformed, beautiful, redeemed people who are alive to God and to His law. And when you entered into the land, you'd be treated with great, such great grace and love and mercy and compassion. Why? Because the law of God says to bless the sojourner, to treat the alien in your land as if they are your own people. And when you traded with the Israelites, you would have gone, there's something different with these people. They don't cheat and steal like the rest of the nations. Why is that? Well, their God has a law that says that, that he abhors dishonest scales. 
You actually get what you paid for when you traded with the Israelites. That was God's plan, was that so people would try, that, that his nation would be a light, to, that Israel would be a light to the nations. That as people traveled to the land, they would go, something's different about these Israelites. Their God, they keep saying it's about their God who's different than our gods. He's the one true God. Maybe we need to leave our gods and worship the one true God of the Israelites. My friends, that was God's plan for putting them in, in that piece of land. The problem is this. Rarely, very rarely, has God's people acted that way in, the, in that promised land. If you know your history, you know, like, yes, from, from like David um, on, on through Solomon, you know, and then from there, the whole nation comes unraveled. There's fighting within the nation. Uh, things are turned upside down. Um, very, it wasn't very um, many years that the people of Israel lived this way. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the nation was dug in into a defensive posture. See, now the mighty Roman Empire had commandeered the land. As a whole, the nation despised Gentiles and wanted nothing to do with them. And you can hardly blame them. But that was the attitude. Now, all of, all of that history just to get to this point. Now imagine if, when Jesus the Messiah came, almost all the nation as a whole did receive him as their Messiah. Answer this question. Tell me, how good of job do you think they would have done to fulfill God's missionary design for his people for the world? Do you think they all of a sudden would have had this great desire to go unto all the nations and make disciples? I know it's speculation, but I, I think the answer would be no. And so Paul says now a mystery has been revealed. God has purposed that his people would stumble over Christ so that a pathway, a door would be opened so that the whole world, the Gentiles, could accept Christ as their Messiah. Look at verse 12. We read there, there, that's their trespass. That's most of Israel. Their trespass means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Verse 15. Their rejection, that is Israel being rejected. Their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. And continuing on, their acceptance, that's the Gentiles being accepted, um, will mean life from the dead. I know this is hard to fathom and figure out, but Paul is articulating that God's plan was that most of his people, by and large, would reject the Messiah so that a door would be open for most of the world, to come to hear about Christ as the Messiah. Now, it's important to see here that God did not create two separate people, uh, Israel and the church. There's only one people that has continued on from Abraham up through today. That remnant of a few thousand faithful Jewish believers has blossomed into the church. Paul gives us a graphic illustration of how this took place. He uses imagery that would have been common in his day, imagery of a wild olive shoot or tree, um, branches being cut off and grafted into a cultivated olive tree, thereby making one tree, not two separate trees, but one tree. When I was in California in January, I flew out to see my brother. We drove from the Bay Area up to, up to Lake Tahoe and uh, did a little snowboarding. But on the way back, we're driving back through around Sacramento, and there was this huge orchard 
and I'm looking at the trees and I'm scratching my head. I was like, there's something wrong with these trees. Like, cause like up to about, you know, waist high, a meter or two, the trunk had a different bark than the rest of the tree upwards. <laughs> And my brother explained to me this was a common practice. They would, they would find, they'd have trees that have really good root systems. I guess like a pine tree, is that right? We have an arborist here. Maybe something like that. And, and they'd plant a whole field of those. And then elsewhere they'd plant fruit trees or nut trees. It is California after all, fruits and nuts. And so, um, by the time both trees were about, what? All right, Adrian, um, on the web version, you can just edit that out. All right. Um, so at, when the tree gets about it, both trees were an inch wide, you cut the top off the fruit tree and you discard the, the bottom and then you cut the top off of the other tree, like a pine tree, whatever, and you, and you graft, you stick it on top and you wrap it up. Fast forward 15, 20 years, that root system is so good at drawing water up that the, that the fruit tree, the nut tree, the almond tree, whatever, just produces like gangbusters, right? And that's what they do. You can drive around, you see that's what they do um, with these trees. Now, that's not the type of grafting that we see taking place here. There's another type of grafting that doesn't cut off the whole tops of trees, right? Instead, what you do is you prune away a little bit of the bark and you expose what's underneath. And then you take a branch from another tree and you slice it at an angle and you attach it there and you wrap it. And over time, it actually grows into that tree. It becomes an, a, what looks like a natural branch of the tree. Paul is telling us that God has done something similar in Israel's day. That, 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 that the remnant was this beautiful tree of righteousness that God has been developing over all these years. And he's taken Gentiles, wild olive shoots, all right? All right? You're, if you're a Gentile, you are a wild olive shoot, all right? And he's, and he's taken them and he's grafted them into the tree. What he's saying here is there's not two separate groups of God's people. It's, it's been this way. God's desire was always to reach the Gentiles. And what he's done is he's not created two separate groups of people, us and them. He's brought them both together into one. That's the imagery that Paul is showing us here. Paul describes God's plans with this imagery of an olive tree for an important reason, to combat pride and arrogance. Paul was worried that the Gentile believers would be arrogant towards Jewish believers. It's possible that the Gentile believer would think something along the lines of, uh, you Jewish Christians are kind of, you Jews are, are kind of pitiful. You had the scriptures, you had the Messiah, everything that should have pointed you to him, and yet, like, hardly any of you believe, but look at us, we Gentiles, look at us, we, we hardly had anything, and yet we believe. Paul was, uh, worried that there would be pride and arrogance within this unified, unified people of God. So Paul corrects such thinking. And he points out, you Gentiles, you were wild <laughs> olive branches, okay? And you have been grafted in to the one true rootstock, the true spiritual Israel. Though a remnant, the tree is God's only tree. And as Gentile believers, they get their nourishment now from this old ancient tree. So don't be arrogant. Instead, be grateful and reverent. See if you can pick up on that in verse 17 through 20. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root 
that supports you. Right? So if you are arrogant, you need to remember that, that this root supports you, Christian. Then you will say, that's after being humbled and after realizing what God is doing, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? Lord, say it in so. Paul says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. The word fear there is where we get our word phobia, phobos. Here it's not so much a, like running for your life fear, but an awe and reverence that we're to have when we come to see God and his glory and his goodness. Paul is saying that when you come to realize that God cut away branches of his own people so that you, a Gentile, would have room to be grafted in, then you will be humbled. You will remember that you only belong because of faith. That is, that you are saved by God's grace and his grace alone. So do not be proud, but display a reverent fear of God for what he has done for you. So the picture we see is that, that God only has one people. From the Old Testament men and women of faith, there remained a remnant in Jesus' day to which God brought in Gentiles and grafted them in. The people are the same, but the name of them has changed. They are now Christians, named after their Messiah, who has saved them. And no longer... No, no longer are the people of God a gathered-in nation, but a people scattered, the church. Paul uses this imagery to promote the future plans of God regarding people of Jewish descent. Paul wants us to know that God is powerful. He can regraft them back in. After all, they are the original branches. He can surely graft them back into his olive tree. And in fact, we are to expect that. Verse 23, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. God's purpose and plan is this. As Gentiles are being grafted into that beautiful rootstock, so too are Jewish people. This has been happening ever since the days of Jesus, all up to today. That's the reason why there is a group called Jews for Jesus, right? Paul wants the church in Rome, and we need to see our calling. The church, the church Paul says, is to cause people, Jewish people, to wish that, that they had what we have in Christ. Look at verse 11 at the end. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Jealous here isn't like an unhealthy jealous, like I'm going to shoot that guy for asking my wife out on a date, right? This is, this is, this is a healthy envy, right? Uh, and it's to have a positive effect. You know, last Sunday was Easter, and we had a lot of people here. 
And um, I got to talk with a couple of Jewish women. I really enjoyed uh, hanging out and talking with them. One of them is a woman I've come to know better and hope to get to know her more better. But um, I think they enjoyed their time here. And, and one of them said to me, though, she said, why, are you, why did you choose that passage that you preached from? If you're here last week, it was Easter, and, and I actually preached from an Old Testament uh, prophet Isaiah from the fourth servant song, the servant song where we see that God was going to send a servant to come who was going to be despised and rejected by his own people, who was going to end up offering up his life as a substitute for sin for God's people, and that he would rise um, out of the tomb, out of the grave, uh, and that, God, that he would share this blessing with people that were called to be his, right? So she asked, you know, why did, I, why did I choose that passage? And now, if you're a Christian here, you think you know why, but I don't think you really do. If you're a Christian here, you're just like, well, it's obvious, Mark, why you preach that passage, because Jesus is the fulfillment of that, Right? That's what we would say as a, as a Christian. But why did she ask that question? I think she asked for another reason. I think it's what Paul's talking about here. The, the envy, the, the jealousy. What do I mean? In asking why I chose that passage, she was essentially saying, Mark, why are you using my Bible? Isaiah's my prophet. These are my prophecies. Why are you using our sacred texts? I should have just told her, why don't you come next week? <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think I gave her some long answer, and I don't even think it was the best answer. My friends, Paul's words are coming true. God's plan is unfolding before our eyes. There are a million of beautiful Jewish people living on planet Earth who are now cut off from God's salvation. But, but Paul says that God will gladly graft them back in when they come to trust in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, there's, we did a demographic study not too long ago. There are 40,000 people who live year-round on the East End. I didn't count Montauk, so, but sorry if you're from Montauk, but maybe there's like, 40,003 people. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many people live in Montauk, but anyway. Uh, but in the demographic study, it reveals that, there's, that of the people who live here year-round, 9% are Jewish by ancestry. Not that they all go to, to, to a temple or anything. But, so 9%. National average is what? 3%. That means there's 3,600 people that we can help point to the Messiah. God has graced church here for a reason, to point all of our neighbors to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the whole world. But if we're going to be faithful in our calling, we will be wise to present Christ to everyone, including our Jewish brothers and sisters. God's plan is that we would be faithful to this calling, that we would not be arrogant but rather we'd be loving and gracious and kind. You know, I'm afraid over the years that many Christians haven't been that way towards Jewish people. There are some who've called themselves Christians who have been anti-Semitic in the past. Paul's words here offer no room for such sinfulness. 
And we cannot look upon the Jewish people as if they're just some other people group to be reached with the gospel. That's not true. When we evangelize Jewish people, we're tasked with the glorious work of calling them back to the tree to which they belong by birthright. That's the purpose. Now for the praise. Let's finish up. It won't take long here. In the end, God always seemed to blow, to, to blow our minds, doesn't he? He always seems to like offer us some truth that is so hard to comprehend that we can't wrap our heads around it. But all we really can do is say, you are God, I am not, and you are worthy of praise, right? This is one such incident. Another such incident, um, down in Florida a few weeks back, Leslie and I were there celebrating my <coughs> uh, birthday. And, uh, and while we were there, we went to an Orlando Magic and Cleveland Cavaliers NBA basketball game. And uh, my oldest daughter was jealous of that, but she's getting over it. Um, most of you think I went there to see who? LeBron James. No, Victor Oladipo. You guys let me know who he is. You should. Uh, he graduated from my alma mater, Indiana University, and he is an amazing athlete. I mean, the guy just flies through the air. He like, you know, he just twists and turns and leaves people going, all right, how did he do that? You know, and... LeBron James, he had like maybe, I think it was like 18 points, which isn't too bad. But for LeBron, you're like, you know, not good enough. Victor Oladipo, 46 points in one game. I mean, he was jumping in the air, turning around, slam dunking, hitting all of his threes. And it got to the end. People were just like, I don't know how he does this. Um, people, even, even his own teammates sitting on the bench got up and did this thing. They did the whole, oh... They're praising, you know, they're bending, they're bowing down, and they're, they're praising Victor Oladipo. How does he do it? How much more shall we wonder at God and praise him? That's what Paul does at the end. These are three really tough chapters, right? Chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans uh, explain some very difficult and challenging things. Paul wraps up with praise. He says, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? He's quoting Job here. Or to, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. My friends, chapters 9 through 11 are really difficult chapters to wrap our heads around. In chapter 9 and 10, Paul tells us that God is sovereign. He chooses whom he will show grace to and mercy, who, who will become um, his people. And then in verse, chapter 10, we see also, well, but mankind is responsible to choose God's grace. We have these two truths that we must hold in tension, all right? They're both true somehow. Uh, we scratched our heads for quite a while. We're still scratching our heads, right? And now we get into chapter 11, and Paul tells us that God has a plan for his own people that would mean that a number of them get stripped off of, of God's tree um, in order that others could be brought in um, with the eventual hope that many, many more Jewish people would come back in. And, but it just blows our mind that God would do such things. And so Paul gives us the proper response, wonder and praise. The depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God truly are beyond understanding. His thinking and his ways are unsearchable. 
for we have not his mind, nor can we begin to be his counselor. You know, God, I don't think I would have done it that way, God. Did you ever think about maybe doing this? It might offend a few people if you do that, right? That's how we are. My God would never do that, right? Isn't that kind of the mindset of the modern American? We cannot give him anything that would cause God to be in our debt. And thank goodness, right? Thank goodness God isn't a God who needs our counsel. <laughs> you know, that would be a pretty messed up God, right? That's what I'd tell you. <sighs> God doesn't owe us anything. But isn't it true? We owe him everything. If you currently belong to God's people, it's because of his grace. It was not because you're smarter or better looking or anything than anybody else. God has showered you with his grace through his son, Jesus. Let's not be proud or arrogant. If you're here today and you're still contemplating Christ, come to Christ. He truly is the Messiah. If it doesn't make a lot of sense right now, um, well, then talk with me. I'd be glad to walk you through this. Talk with somebody else here at the church. We'll do so with love and compassion and hopefully, you know, um, we will listen and, and answer. My prayer is that you would have a soft heart, not a hard heart. For if your heart is hard, if your heart, heart is hard, this passage doesn't give you much hope, right? We owe God everything. Because we belong to Christ, this last prayer of Paul's is ours too. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are unsearchable. Um, your ways are inscrutable. We, we have tiny pea brains, and we think we know it all. Um, thank you that you humble us, that you cause us to say you are God and we are not. Today, as we perhaps have many things turning around in our heads and trying to figure them out, God, would you be gracious to us? Would you show us mercy? Would you soften our hearts? Would you give us